I'm Jeff Cohen. Saturday to Shabbos is a big announcement to make. We are now two years old, and we're coming up on our hundredth episode. Each of them has featured the real-life story of a person who's made his or her way to Orthodox Judaism, defying the circumstances of their surroundings, and sometimes even of their birth. Their stories have elicited so many emotions from our listeners, and as host of the podcast, I can tell you personally, I've been flat-out wowed by the courage and determination of our guests. Here to help me mark this happy occasion is Saturday to Shabbos producer and the star of episode 47, Gary Wallach. Hey, Gary. Hey, Jeff, and mazel tov to the star of episode three. Yes, we're both stars, episode three and episode 47, so let me just say it back at you. Thank you. And of course, we have some celebrating to do, so let's briefly revisit some of our favorite episodes from the past year. We're going to start with the story of Daniel Tamir, who played seven years of professional basketball in Israel and Hungary. He spent four years as an assistant basketball coach at Yeshiva University, or YU, and while he was a student there, he began to learn Torah and dabble in Shabbos observance. He was so inspired that during a 2018 losing streak, he posed a question to the YU point guard that Tamir says led to unprecedented on-court success for the team. And I told him, you know what, why would we sit and study some Torah before the game? So he says, you know what, I love it. I have this book that I'm reading, Olam Amidot. I told him I love a book that's called Mesilat Yesharim, The Path of the Just. Let's go, let's learn. So we study for five minutes and we win the game. Fine. We tell the guys, listen, <laughs> we, won, we won, come join us. So the following game, a few more players come in, we study, we win again. We do it again, a few more players, we win again. We ended up seeing that every game that we learn about a topic, it connects to the game. So let's say we spoke about the trade of anger. We would play against a team that we always get technical fouls against, and we would, oh wow, this is really connecting to what's happening. We would have a game against a team we were much better at on paper, and we would get complacent. We talked about the Midat Anava, about humility, and, and so on and so on. And we won eight games in a row. And by then, the whole team is sitting in the locker room, including all the coaches, and we get to, the, to an away game in Farmingdale. And we are late to the game, and we say, you know what, we don't have time, we're not going to study. So we lose the game in overtime. We look at each other like, listen, there's something here. We have to get back to it. And we kept going all the way throughout the season. And uh, thank God that was the first championship that we won in 2018. That's such a wonderful story, but it got even better. The championship Tamir refers to is the Skyline Conference Tournament. The team kept studying Torah together, and they won that tournament two more times which means they also made it to the Division Three Big Dance three times, which is great stuff. I also loved how he's embraced his height. Daniel mentioned how his height comes up in literally every conversation, and he had to make a choice to either be annoyed by the constant questioning or embrace what makes him unique. And clearly he has a healthy attitude toward his nearly seven-foot frame. Uh, yeah, he does, and I guess that means that having a healthy attitude about being only six foot three inches tall isn't that impressive on my part. <laughs> anyway, I produced a national sports radio program for almost three decades, and the host and I would often roll our eyes when one famous athlete or another would attribute his or her team's win to God. Obviously, there are more important things than a football or a basketball game. But in the case of Daniel Tamir's story, I think there's a lot more going on here, and the proof is the way he frames his story in a bigger picture. When we look at Torah, a lot of it is trying to improve our vessel, who we are as human beings, how we're more aware, how we're more cautious. And once you approach it this way, then it becomes something that's really is good for everyone. 
I'm also inspired by the fact that Daniel uses his basketball gifts as a means to inspire kids in Torah. He's launching all these clinics and camps around the country that combine basketball and Torah in a really meaningful way. Okay, on to another favorite. In December of 2022, I had the opportunity to talk in person with rapper Neeson Black about his amazing and sometimes tragic story. By the time he was a teenager, Black had followed Christianity, Islam, and even so-called Messianic Judaism. And he was making a name for himself as a rapper, although a very different one than he is now. When he was just 19, his mother sadly died of an overdose, and his first record included a tribute to her. But it also earned him a target on his back, which presented a serious dilemma. So, for many different reasons, the album kind of took off and got a lot of popularity. And so, as this is starting to spread, this other artist, you know, he wants to get himself out there. Now, generally, what a person would do is, like, you just put more into your marketing dollars. Well, in rap, we have a shortcut. Shortcut is you diss whoever's getting the most, uh, getting the most popularity. If you can get that person to respond to you, then more people are going to look at you, uh, no matter if you win or lose. So he said some things in the song about me that was not nice. It's very uh, and Haradik. <laughs> and... My initial response was that I would write a song back. And after I write the song back to him, then, you know, at, at that point, then we'll, you know, we'll keep the competition going. So a friend of mine walks in and he says, if we just go beat the guy up, he won't make any more songs. Mm. He's the type of chevra I was around, you understand? Right. So this is what we ended up doing. We ended up going, finding him at a nightclub. We get into this crazy fist fight outside the, the nightclub. And police come and break everything up. Unfortunately, a friend of mine went up after me and he tried to kill the guy with a gun. And he was a horrible shot. He shot everything except for the guy, by the way. Fire hydrant, side of the curb, everything got shot except for a person. So what ends up happening, he goes into custody. But now I have a major dilemma because now the other guys think that I sent somebody to take their life. And now they're thinking if they don't come and take my life, then I'm going to come and take them. So it put me in a compromised uh, situation. And I always say it was a kill or be killed situation. It was very scary for me. Right. So I can't even imagine what you're thinking at that moment. How am I going to get out of this? And like your life is like really coming to a head at this moment. Yes. So what did you ultimately decide to do? Very, very scary. So this is why I say Hashem has an amazing plan. And he knows how to reach every person. My natural response was prayer. I was in my living room, you know, after finding out what the whole situation was. And I just fell to my knees and I started crying and crying and crying. And start doing this reflection saying, how did I get here? Right? Because now my life is on the line. So I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And I would say, Shim did for me a miracle. He made an ace. My phone rang after some time and it was the other guy. He also wanted to squash the whole entire thing. The reason why I say that's a miracle is because when you come from where I come from, you know how many situations could have just been put away if somebody would have picked up the phone and called. Right. So because I had that call, I realized that for me that was a sign from God that he was giving me a shot to do something different because nobody ever calls you to like ask if you're trying to kill them or not. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's not a kasha, you know? So, so when that happened, I'm saying like, this is for real. And so this time, I was just in this state of like, God, you saved my life. What's next? And so I stayed home, and I was praying and praying and praying and praying. And all of a sudden, I just had this thought to, like, go pick up the Bible again, you know. So I'm starting to read it, and I'm just looking at it a little bit differently, 
you know? I'm starting from the beginning of Gracious, and I start to realize that I had a lot of questions, and I was just, I was searching for God. And it was very, very hard and very heavy on me, but uh, during that time, I felt that Hashem was with me the whole entire time. That is one intense story, and I don't know what else to add, except to point out that Nisim would eventually find truth in Yiddishkeit and undergo an Orthodox conversion. I'm so impressed by his diligence, his courage, and his intelligence. He's now a very well-known rapper and performer, a father of seven children, the last I counted, and he even has his own brand of whiskey, which I'll point out, nobody has sent us bottles of yet. (laughs) That is a good point on the whiskey, but I suppose we have to let that slide, because after all, he did put on an amazing, incredible live show in Fairlawn in front of over 300 fans. The social hall like really came alive that night. Yeah, I wish I could have been there. I was listening remotely, but watching remotely was really fun too. So I've prepared clips from two complimentary stories, and they both have to do with a mezuzah. The first involves Tova Mordechai, who was born Jewish, but raised in a Pentecostal household. When she was a teenager, she was accepted as the youngest student in an evangelical college. Some, including Tova, have described that school as being oppressive and even cultish. But a visit from her Jewish uncle would lead to her getting out physically and spiritually. It began when he gave her a mezuzah. It was then another three and a half years later after my uncle gave me the mezuzah that I actually walked past the synagogue and I don't know why. That was just a very spontaneous thing. I just went in and I sat at the back. And I'd only been there a few moments, and the rabbi went to the front of the shul, to the Aaron Akodash, and he took out the Torah scroll. And what does he say? But Shema Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. And the congregation repeats the words. And I remember standing there and thinking, well, that's really cute. All you have to do is copy what the rabbi says. And I remember standing there and thinking, even I could do that. But I only stayed a few moments because I was afraid that maybe someone from the church had seen me enter the synagogue or would see me leave. And I hurried back to the church. We had a little bit of free time on Saturday mornings. I snuck out to the synagogue and I made sure to get there at the time before because I wanted to see, did the rabbi take out the scroll as a one-time occurrence or does he do this every week? So I made sure to get there a little bit earlier than I'd gone there previously. And sure enough, the rabbi again took out the scroll. And again, he said, Shema, and this time I was ready. And for the first time in my life, I acknowledged that there was one God. I had no idea at all what I'd said, or even if I'd said the words properly. But again, it was a little bit of strength to my Jewish soul to like begin, you know, to strengthen that process of a return. And I really think that that was a really big part of the awakening of my neshama because the more I went, it awakened a longing in the very gut of my being just to be with Jews. Well, I'm listening to her story again, this piece in particular, and one of the themes that I see across so many of our stories is how one small moment becomes the catalyst for major life change and growth. Tova's really no exception, but I would say her story was one of the more dramatic religious shifts we've ever encountered. Yeah, definitely. And it makes one think even more deeply about the soul 
and its connection to mitzvahs. So you mentioned that there were two mezuzah-related stories. So what's the second one? So Jeff, you'll remember Brian Sylvie, an IT engineer who grew up in a pretty secular household, but started on his return to Judaism after a trip to Israel, which any of our listeners will recognize as a recurring theme on Saturday to Shabbos. Anyway, one pivotal moment for Brian came while he was still in college. I was in the fraternity for a while, and probably the triggering moment was in December of, I believe, 1998, when most of the folks were getting ready to go home and it was exams time. So the parties were really starting to ramp up. And uh, it was very, very late one night at one of these houses that I mentioned that had mezuzahs on the walls and on, on almost every door. And uh, I was pretty inebriated, ready to call it a night. And I noticed across the hallway that two of my fraternity brothers were prying mezuzahs off the walls with a screwdriver. And so I got up and I followed them to the next room and they'd taken out some of the scrolls and were examining them. And one of them was, you know, crumpling them up and throwing them on the floor. So I stepped forward and I said, you know, what are you guys doing? Feeling like I had some obligation to protect and defend these mezuzahs and knowing their sanctity. So they said, you know, well, what are they called? And I said, they're called mezuzahs. So what are they for? And the best that I could manage in that state of mind was they're on Jewish people's homes. And so they kept asking me questions. Well, why are they on every door? And a bunch of other questions to which I kept answering, I don't know. I don't know. And one of them looks at me with real disdain in his eyes, and I'll I'll still remember the look on his face for years. He said, well, if you're the Jew and you don't know, why should we care? And I said, look, you're destroying these people's houses. Give me the mezuzahs right now. Just stop what you're doing. And so they started up a fight, effectively, and things got loud, things got ugly. One of them walks away, and I thought I was only arguing with one guy. And the other guy comes back into the room with a whole handful of these batim and klafim of mezuzahs. And he says, you want them? You want them so bad? Come and get them. And he throws them into a burning fireplace. Whoa. And both of them just sort of burst out laughing, and my heart sank. So this is exactly what I was trying to avoid. And you know that feeling of when you do something that you're trying to avoid and it happens anyway. I walked out of the house and it was a very, very cold night. I sat down somewhere down the block on the curb and I just started to cry. And I thought, if you're the Jew and you don't know, yeah, why should they care? And that's what triggered me to really start looking into it. And I started hanging out in Lakewood. I started hanging out in Brooklyn and I started getting invited up to Muncie. And that's really where the learning began, and the journey starts on the real path to Torah observance. You know, what really hits me about Brian's story is how he saw something anti-Semitic, and it was the thing that awakened his neshama. And sometimes we don't know how much we care about something until it's threatened, and that was so clearly the case with Brian. Yeah, and that's been the case with me as well and with our community here. Uh, A few months ago, some very, very nice person spray-painted a swastika not far from my house and from the shul we attend. Our response was more mitzvahs, more Shabbos guests, more Torah study, and a public rally which was covered on local news all over the place, which included many non-Jews. We collectively said we're just not going to be intimidated, and there are now more mezuzahs on our doorposts in this neighborhood than I believe we've ever seen before. And I'm proud of you, Gary, for taking action, not just accepting it. That's the way it's got to be. 
So now we go from the desecration of sacred items to the renting of athletic facilities. How's that for a transition? (laughs) I remember one episode we had in September of 2022 featured Emmett Gillis. He's currently a lawyer in New Haven, Connecticut. And a little over 10 years ago, he attended the University of North Carolina, where he was captain of the men's rowing team. Life is stranger than fiction. You couldn't make this up. So the rowing house, at least historically, I don't think this is true anymore, rented the second floor apartment from the rabbi who operated the Chabad house on campus at UNC. So I was kind of thrust into this unexpected juxtaposition of, you know, here I am, again, a student athlete in college, doing well in my classes, applying myself to the rowing. And like my underground Judaism, which is, you know, basically lost in some void of my family past is now getting like poked and prodded because I, you know, come back from rowing practice on Friday afternoon and there would be the rabbi with, you know, his cute kids running around making preparations for Shabbat, inviting me, of course. And I ended up going now and again. I won't say I was a regular, but it was kind of too close to ignore. And so I brushed up again against Judaism in this unexpected way. And that led to even more unexpected results. It was totally not what I you know, anticipated, that this would be the beginning of my own Jewish rediscovery and awakening. Quite the opposite. I thought, you know, I thought I had Judaism kind of pegged, like Judaism was this awkward thing that kids have to go through before they can grow up and live in the exciting free world as adults. And, and I thought that I was you know, kind of gracing the Chabad house with my presence as this is just sort of, yeah, little did I know something was kind of seeping in in the meantime. And I was starting to pick up on that. There was, I had missed something pretty fundamental about Judaism and needed to recalibrate. And did Emmett ever recalibrate? He attended Mayanot, married, and now he's raising children with his wife, Rivka. His appearance on Saturday to Shabbos must have gotten his gears turning if they hadn't been already because he contacted me shortly afterward and asked me to help him and his wife, Rivka, launch their podcast. It's called Shuva Full Circle, and it provides resources for yeshiva and seminary-educated Bali Tshuva who are integrating into Froom communities. It's maybe not exactly a sister podcast to Saturday to Shabbos, but definitely a complimentary one. They get great guests, and I really, really enjoy working with them. And of course, there's plenty of room in the podcast space for more shows, so I wish them nothing but success. Oh man, they're such a nice couple. From there, we now move on to Eliza Bulow, who embraced Orthodox Judaism as a convert and raised children, including one who had special needs. Hashem chose to put a neshama into our family that needed a lot of extra love and that would bring a lot out of us. And that neshama was born into a body that had a brain that had mental illness. So um, that mental illness developed over time. And so it was a real challenge. And it really, it was hard on the family. And everybody loved him. And was sometimes scared of him too, both. It was hard as he grew into bipolar and Asperger's. So the Asperger's was quirky, weird, fun. And I love the word quirky because it's not pejorative, whereas weird might be. But he was definitely quirky. But he did end up dying of suicide. So it's dying of his mental illness at age 19 which, yes, was a tragedy. And there are many parents who would say, I wish I could just take on like the pain that my child has, like a pain. And in a way, that's what happens. Like, I didn't necessarily wish that, but I saw in his death that he's now out of pain and we're now in it. 
and um, there's that switch of the emotional pain. But I think in a way it's distributed across the family, so everybody has more, but hopefully in quantities that we can all live with, and he couldn't live with the quantity that he had. There's always the shoulda, coulda, wouldas in the end. Could we have, should we have mortgaged our house for one more treatment program or like whatever it is? And I just was like, I, I did everything I could within my powers. And and this is what Hashem decided. You know, it's like that's when he needed to exit. And maybe he lasted a few extra years because of everything that we did. But he was not meant to grow into adulthood, sadly. He's now out of pain and we're now in it. I love the directness and the poetry of that. You know, there there might be a tendency for someone who's embraced Torah Judaism, whether as a Balchuva or a convert, to think that the added dimension of spirituality might protect you from hardship. But so many of our guests have dealt with tragedy and with hardship, which leads me to think that Hashem gives us tools not to shield us necessarily from challenges, but to help us meet them and to make some kind of sense of it all. Aliza Bulo certainly does that. I also really respect when our guests are willing to share personal hardships so openly. It makes them really relatable and I think inspires others in their journeys to realize they too could overcome whatever obstacles are in front of them. For sure. Jeff, as we've discussed, Hashem leaves breadcrumbs for all of us in order to show us the way back. And I'm often amazed at the flair with which he does it. The case of Dr. Henry Abramson certainly demonstrates that. Abramson is Dean of Toro University's Lander College of Arts and Sciences, but he grew up in a family that was the only Jewish family in their Canadian outpost town. His return to Judaism began on a ski slope when shortly after seeing the woman he was sure would one day be his wife and who would become his wife, he suffered an extremely serious injury. As soon as I saw my wife, everything was over. That was really it. I had no questions from that very moment. Of course, all that other complicated stuff, you know, family and Judaism and, you know, work, that took a long time to piece together. She took a little more convincing, by the way. She did not have the same kind of aha moment. I had to convince <laughs> her that it had happened, but uh, Borah Hashem was ultimately successful. But as we got more serious, it came down to the point where I had to reevaluate all the things. Like, for example, when I met my wife, again, as the mess I was at that time, my plan was to ski year-round. I was going to ski in New Zealand in Canadian summers and then come back to Canada to ski in the winters. I was professional not only as an instructor but as a coach, and that was my plan. But what happened was one night I was training and we were using some bamboo gates, right? Like, you know, how slalom, you ski between these sort of gates. And the bamboo ones are the old-fashioned ones. They don't bend over when you hit them. They, uh, they break or you break when you hit them. So I caught a tip when I was going around uh, one turn and I ran into a flush, which is like a series of them straight in a line. And I broke several of them over my thigh. And... Uh, I actually burst my femoral artery, which is a really big artery in the thigh that most people, when it's burst, you die because you bleed out in a very rapid amount of time. My skin didn't break. It was only an internal bursting because of the pressure of, of hitting the gates at about 20 miles an hour. Went to the hospital and the whole thing, and, and uh, I had to be in a wheelchair for six months. But I did not die, as you see. 
And um, that meant that all that other stuff, you know, had to be put on hold. I didn't know if I would ski again. There were even some questions if I would walk again after that. Thank God, full recovery and skiing as well. But it meant that my wife and I spent a lot more time together and I got to know her and was able to slowly work through these, these other parts of my life. So I can say that one of the greatest kindnesses that God ever gave me was that terrible skiing accident, which allowed me to prioritize my life appropriately around the things that were important. Which, of course, included Torah Judaism. That's great, but ouch. Ouch, indeed. But it also is a good example of how something that seems like bad news can, in retrospect, actually be the best thing that ever happened to you. Finally, our conversation with songwriter and musician Peter Himmelman included so many great stories. One of the most interesting was how Himmelman began keeping Shabbos, which is not an easy transition to make if your living is made through live performances, particularly on Friday night and Saturday. I remember I was on Island Records. The new president had been installed. His name was Lou Malia, this very super funny kind of gruff-speaking Italian guy who had like been involved in the Eagles' career. I was his first signing on Island Records, and we were close. And I said to Lumalia once, he was trying to get me on these tours with Sting, the couple other people that he had in mind. And I just told him, I came in the office. I was living in Hell's Kitchen. I took a subway down to the village. I said, Lou, I'm keeping this thing now called Shabbos. You know, I won't be able to play on Friday night. He's like, ah, Shabbos. <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, like, and he thought I was joking because he's he was sort of a lapsed Catholic. And when I explained a lot to him where I was coming from, he was strangely supportive of it. It made his job tremendously difficult. But he could tell it was for real, and it was and slowly I just started not playing on Friday night. My last gig was with Joe Cocker. We opened for Joe Cocker. I'd had three or four Friday nights. I, I did them. And after the last gig, I got off stage. It wasn't so dramatic. I just went back to my hotel room. I walked back, you know, it was quite a ways. It was in Cleveland. And that was the last Shabbos I ever played. You know, that was it. Himmelman says it was no big deal to give up playing on Friday nights and Saturdays once he had made the decision to keep Shabbos. But speaking as a former touring musician who used to do that, I know that that results in a big loss, financially certainly, and in some other ways. So it is a big deal. And I admire Himmelman, who's still playing and writing music for a living, while I am not, for sticking to his principles and for writing a lot of very beautiful songs. By the way, it also reminds me how some of our guests pointed out that their careers actually took off once they made the commitment to Orthodox Judaism. It's like Hashem rewards them for making a great decision. Yeah, for sure. So here we are now at this point at two years and nearly 100 episodes in. What are your takeaways, Gary, as we prepare to produce the next 100 Saturday to Shabbos episodes? Some of my takeaways are the same as last year, that I'm amazed at the way Hashem leaves little signs for people, leaves little signposts and a trail of breadcrumbs. But in addition to that, 
I think it's amazing to consider how many more people are out there with great stories about their return to authentic Judaism and how many more there are who are considering doing that. There are more Balei Tshuva and more converts to Orthodox Judaism than at any time in history, which is amazing, and it's really inspiring too. So how about you, Jeff? To me, I can see how there are common threads in our stories, but still each one is unique and inspiring in its own right. So I really look forward to continuing to hear more stories, inspiring our listeners and continuing to share the beauty of living an observant life. So let's call it a wrap, Gary, for our second birthday party. We got to thank the people who make this podcast possible, of course. That's all of our guests who so willingly and ably relate their personal stories. Also, a big shout out to the OU and Asher Tesser, Susan Abrams and Rabbi Moshe Bransdorfer. And of course, the most important person of all, you, our listener. And thank you, Jeff, for all your hard work in Menschlichkeit and for making this podcast really such a pleasure to work on. So on to the next 100 episodes. All right, but let's space them out a little bit. 100, we can't do them all in one day, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at taklismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.